This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart, and as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cami here. I am super excited about... uh Today's episode, I think it's really vulnerable and honest, and it's a chat with Kristen Russo, who you might know from the Buffering podcast or from her long history of work um, in the LGBTQ advocacy space. She's also a good friend of mine, and um, I think this is a really honest and beautiful chat. And hey, speaking of honest and beautiful chatting, plus jokes, (laughs) I have added some dates in uh, Manhattan and Minneapolis to the shows that I have coming up in Portland, San Francisco, um, Brooklyn, Boston, and Los Angeles that are not yet sold out. You can find all that information at CameronEsposito.com slash tour. Please scoop up those tickets and enjoy my chat with Kristen Russo. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still I always have guests introduce themselves. Will you introduce yourself? I will. Um, hi, uh, my name is Kristen Russo. I do some things like, do you want me to talk about what I do, Cameron? Well, it can really be a choose-your-own-adventure, but sure, I'd love to hear how you describe what you do. Well, that's I know it's the eternal question. Mostly these days I do exactly this. I talk into a microphone, but I do so about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, a show from the 1990s. And I also have worked with LGBTQ communities for almost a decade. Yeah, you you have um so we know each other outside of just being speaking to microphones on this particular day. And <laughs> um you really have I mean, I guess maybe that is even sort of part of why I have that thing where I have people introduce themselves because, like, sometimes I have somebody on Query who's, like, just an actor. And I don't mean only an actor, but I mean solely an actor or, like, solely a whatever. But I just feel like, especially in the queer community and then also in 2020, you know, combining those two things, it's like even even the guy I had on who is a realtor is also the like founder of gayrealestate.com that like <laughs> created a place for you to find gay realtors so that you like if you're in the LGBT community you know like it's like that's yeah, we're all yeah. doing that shit it feels like to me anyway a lot of people um or you know anyway there's like I'm a yeah I'm a venture capitalist and I own my own venture capital firm but I'm also a podcaster like a lot of there's a lot of hyphenates and and slashes around oh yeah no anytime anyone asks me what I do I like pause and look at them very seriously and I'm like here's the thing we have to like take a minute because <laughs> and, and sometimes I wish that I could say like I am an actor or I am a writer or I am a like I just want accountant a what about or- the word accountant uh, yes, I just want a word, you know, like a one word answer that like springs to mind a thing that is definable. But actually, instead I have to be like, well, here it, my story <laughs> begins, you know. Actually, just as just as a side, um, as an aside, I would like to put out a call for, hey, if you are if you have a job, <laughs> if you listen to the show regularly and you have a job, like say you're an accountant, um, if you have like you get like when you do your taxes, if you know how to do that based on 
things that you receive from your employer. If, you, if there's an HR department where you work, um, <laughs> I would like to hear from you because I also know there are a shit ton of queer folks um, yes. who are in that space. But I just feel like most people who are connecting on the internet or like in entertainment or those are sometimes the people that are easier to find and know mm-hmm. about. So if you yeah, have queer people in finance, we yeah, need to hear from you. <laughs> yeah, I'm serious. I really would love to have some chats about what your life is like. So uh, just yell at me, don't yell at me, speak kindly to me on Twitter. I would like to hear what your job is and maybe we could talk about it. For like half a minute, I thought you were going to be like, I'm having some difficulty filing my taxes. So could you hit me up? I no longer can, I no longer can file my own taxes because it's like really complicated at this point, but I used to just do my own on TurboTax where I would be like, it would be a stack of receipts that were all like business expenses, but it was mostly Fritos that I was just like, <laughs> technically this is what I ate at work. Like I, like this actually yes. is like a write off. I was out of town. I was there for work. Listen, this is how very... I treated myself. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I've done a better job of taking care of myself. And also now usually an accountant helps me. So that's amazing. Yeah. You get very little, um, from being self-employed. And the one thing you get is to write off Cheetos, Fritos, any yes. kind of shit. <laughs> so I'm, I'm here to defend that. <laughs> but you really have, um, created currently, I think sort of an unusual job because it's like, it's podcasting, but it's also like niche podcasting or niche podcasting, I think is maybe how you actually say that. Um, (laughs) In that, like, it's for a specific fandom, although I know you also, like, work outside of that fandom. And I mean, I don't know how transparent you want to be about this, but I think it would be interesting to hear a little bit about, like, how you do make money doing your job. (laughs) I think I know this, but I bet for listeners, this might be interesting. Well, it's all sort of like unfolded itself as a path, you know, because for I worked for many, many years uh, in queer community and it was very difficult to monetize that in any way, shape or form. So I've had like many years of trying to figure out how to monetize things before I came to podcasting. So um, when we started Buffering the Vampire Slayer, which is the name of my podcast uh, that I do with Jenny Owen Youngs, who (laughs) I don't know if you want to talk about it, but was my wife and is now my ex-wife, a fascinating queer tale of podcasting. Mm -hmm. But uh, when we began, um, Jenny had been a musician for, you know, almost a decade. I had been doing work in queer community for almost a decade. And so we came to the table with a lot of knowledge about how to monetize and um, did so with Buffering. So Buffering has uh, four different places that we make money from, uh, the biggest one being Patreon, actually, which is, I'm sure most people listening know what that is, but it's a crowdfunding um, platform that's sort of, instead of a one-time deal, it's ongoing. Um, And then we also have music um, because every episode comes with a song. So the music sales are another way that we monetize the the obvious way, which is advertising. And then we also do a lot of merchandise, uh, merchandising. So that's that's the way that we made it. Did you list those in order? Was that the order Um, of how they? No, uh, let me think. Actually, almost. um, No, music would probably be this. Music is complicated because it would probably be one of the smaller revenue streams. But it is the main reason why people pledge to us on Patreon is to get the music in advance. So it's a little gray there. Oh, Um, I don't. I so when you when you and the other thing about Patreon besides it being ongoing, you also get like perks. 
if you yes. participate at that level. Right. Yeah. The, the purpose of Patreon, sort of like the core of it, and I think like I really believe the the mission of it, which is that as creators, it's very easy to create and not be able to make any income from that. Um, and so Patreon exists as a way for you to hopefully monetize those creations without doing extra work to make to make the money. So it's like what we already do, we can sort of incentivize. Like you get the MP3 of this song before we release the album at the end of the season. Or we do like watches where we watch an episode of Buffy with people, things like that. Um, but I think, not to get too far ahead in the conversation, but I think that the the thing that connects all the work that I do is that Buffering is a podcast, but it's much more so a community. And I think that that is the common denominator between all the work that I've ever done is that it seems like any project I start, it winds up becoming like a community space and a space where we share with each other and meet people with shared interests and dialogue about things. And, you know, this time we have vampires as like a a theme, but it's still, you know, it's still very much about um, being queer or, you know, being white um, and like how we can work on behalf of marginalized communities. Like there's just a lot of conversation happening uh, of that. Of that kind in that space. So not to take us off the money path, but. <laughs> no, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, and I, I totally recognize what you're talking about from your work because you also, um, to my knowledge, still produce this show independently and then kind of run all of those things that you're talking about, the Patreon and, and um, putting up the music and stuff like that, which I, I don't, you know, I have a podcasting network for me. That was like the amount of bandwidth I had in my Mm -hmm. life for this podcast was that I needed a partner. Um, And I have a really awesome team here at Earwolf. Hello, Jordan, in there (laughs) recording this, you know. And then um, I love what you're saying because it does feel like maybe a bunch of things that, like, you taught yourself over time. You know, like, I I still do stand-up sort of as my main thing. And that is something that I, like, taught myself over time. And I I really... um, value that in myself. I don't know. Like, like, I love that I like put in the time to learn how to do the thing. Yeah, Um, no, like I really feel at this point because I do, I, I produce the show. I work with an editor, but also very closely and do the second passive edits on my own. I've learned pro tools and logic during this process and also a lot about sound and microphones and the work that I did before that I had to learn about business and like forming a business and taxes. And so I, I've really gathered and amassed this giant chest of tools over the last 10 years that feels really incredible and really wonderful. And I think that, you know, as much as I wish that as, um, you know, like a a person working on behalf of and as a part of queer community, uh, you didn't have to work so hard. That is one of the plus sides um, is that because I I haven't had a larger team for a lot of the projects I've done, I've become way more versatile. And at this point in my career, I feel very confident sort of like walking into a room and being like, you should hire me and here are the reasons why. (laughs) Yeah, that's actually, that's so awesome. Well, because I also know that just in terms of, you know, professionally, I know you had like a whole different life the earlier that was like, yeah. uh, that was a more corporate experience that we were talking about at the beginning <laughs> of that. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, well, right before I left my job to um, start working full time on the first organization I had, which was called Everyone is Gay, I was working at a hedge fund, which is like a hilarious reveal. I have this like photo of myself with Colin Powell um, that every (laughs) once in a while I'll like put up on Instagram because I have like, I just look like a different human entirely. Like he's in a suit and we're at like a forum and it's a whole thing. Um, But I worked at a hedge fund for 
mm, three, four years, maybe. No, longer than that. I worked there for five years, actually, before um, leaving to do this work. But it was kind of a... um, the the weird corporate meat of the sandwich, if you will. I'm so sorry. I didn't think about like where that metaphor was going to go. But um, it, it I, I was a, a theater company person before that. I had started my own theater company. You know, I had gone to school for theater. So I, the corporate minute of my life was bizarre. And it sort of came from, I didn't know what to do next. I found this interview. I took it. I got the job. And I couldn't believe that I could make money and have health insurance, you know. Wait, what do you mean you found this interview? Like, do you do you remember where you... Yeah, well, so I was working at an art gallery. My path was like, I got to the city and I was waiting tables. So You're in, like New, the, York. The, that's I'm the, in New York. That's yeah. the city. The city. I'm, yes, I'm so Carrie sorry. Listen, Carrie <laughs> Come on, we all know yeah. it is the city. <laughs> so I'm in New York City. I moved here when I was 19. I finished college here. I had a degree in theater uh, and I was waiting tables and started a theater company. And when I was waiting tables, I met this woman who ran an art gallery. And it wasn't a very big gallery at the start. It was like by appointment only on Bond Street. And so I helped her out. I would like go sit in the gallery for a couple hours at a time, wound up being with her when she opened up a bigger gallery. And it was great. And she was wonderful. And she was a great mentor to me. But I was very, first of all, I wasn't making very much money. And second of all, I was like in a giant white room um, for eight hours a day. So I um, started applying at like headhunter places. So that is how I quote, found the interview. Um, It was supposed to be a temp position. And I went in and apparently charmed them uh, so much that they were like, screw it, we want to hire her permanently. So I never tempt. I I have a couple, I have a a couple follow up questions. Here's the first one. Because I was just in New York like last week and I walked past a gallery where there was, it was such a small space. There were like four pictures, paintings on the walls. And um, (laughs) there was also an employee who was leaning against the glass, (laughs) like facing, (laughs) facing the street and was FaceTiming somebody. And I just thought to myself, that that is, there not, not one there isn't one out of a th- one million times that I walk past this. There isn't one time that I'm like, I wonder if I should be the only person in this four <laughs> painting thing where the gallery worker is also FaceTiming with her boyfriend. Like, I just was like, this, everything about this hits no urge to participate yeah. in me. So this is my question. It has nothing to do with anything, but it's a real question. <laughs> do people buy things at art galleries in New York City? <laughs> my impression is No. <laughs> Because I think of other people as being similar to myself. But do they? First of all, I sympathize with whoever that art gallery person was FaceTiming with her boyfriend because I know how lonely you are. Oh, 100%. (laughs) I got where she was coming from. I was just like, I was just like, I don't, I let, I literally like turned to my girlfriend I was with and I was like, there, how, who does. Right. So, um, yes, apart from sympathizing with her, I will say, so people. People do buy things from art galleries, but it is very, very rare for somebody to come in off the street, look around and be like, I will take one of those. It's usually, yeah. It's like a list of of people that the gallery owner presents. I don't know what the word, that the gallerist. uh, (laughs) Right? Is that it? You run with this. Well, it's sort of like, so we worked with a lot of like art consultants, I think they were called, where, you know, when you have a lot of money, you have people that 
that get your art for you. You're like, I like this and that and right. the other thing. And they know all the galleries and they know all the artists. So then then we would have them come in and they'd be like, we want to borrow these five pieces. Got it. And they would take them to, the, it was really crazy because when I worked for the hedge fund, I connected my gallery with my very rich boss. And so my worlds collided oh, when wow. I sold art. I mean, I didn't, I should have made some commission really. Yes, you should have. Can, can <laughs> I'm going to go back Is that on still that, yeah. live? I don't know what the words are. <laughs> Can you still yeah, get in on that? Okay. I don't know what the uh, what the laws are, but but anyhow, um, people do buy art in galleries, but I, at least in the gallery I worked at, it was very very rare for people to like stroll in. Got it. Um, which is not to discourage you from doing so. It's just people usually do it in like the rich person way. <laughs> I understand what you're saying. I there's yeah. a, you're you're talking about middlemen. I get yeah. I get the middle people. I get I get what yeah. you're saying. Um, all right. Well, so something to shoot for is as I continue to become richer over time. <laughs> Uh, walking in and yeah. buying art right but, on the spur but, of the moment. One one day you can play this back to your art consultants and laugh about the time when you didn't know how people bought art at art Yeah, exactly. You know? But I will break it is what I'm saying. I'll say I'm going to go to every – I'm going to walk in gallery. I'll take it. Yes. I'll yes. take it. The oh, room. my God. The look, the look on the person's face yeah. will be sheer panic. They won't know what to do. <laughs> okay. That – Wow, I feel like I really understand things. <laughs> so then why does there have to be a gallery? Oh, I don't know. Never mind. We don't have to talk about this anymore. <laughs> um, okay. So, all right. Well, I mean, there can't be an opening if there's not a gallery, and that means there can't be free wine for people to have while they look at art. So, like, that's the that's the Got real reason, I think. It. <laughs> it's to make people continue to feel like they live in the city. Yes. Also, yeah. I'm so sorry to everyone who works at art galleries and is professional if I am completely destroying what actually happens. I'm just speaking from what I know from like the year 2003. This sorry. sounds right. This <laughs> th Everything you said just sounds like the logical. It sounds right. logical. For, feel free to forward me any <laughs> angry art emails. I'll, t I'll take point. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. I, I for sure will. I'll have, them, I'll have them FaceTime you directly while leaning against the window. <laughs> Okay, so I know I had another question and I can't remember what it was, but, oh, th this was it. When you worked at a hedge fund, mm -hmm. what did you wear? Oh, my God. Well, I was lucky enough, I mean, depending on what you consider lucky, but I was lucky enough to be in a place where I didn't have to wear like a full suit. Uh, it was casual enough, but I had to wear like work pants and usually like a button down shirt or button up. I'm a really bad queer when it comes to knowing the difference between those two things. I'm so sorry. Um, I call them button downs. That's just button me. downs. That's what I well, say. Well, there is there is a difference between a button up and I a button down. I call them all button downs. And that's oh, great. Okay. a choice I made. And uh, you know what? Good. It's just what I'm doing. <laughs> Well, anyhow, you, I had to wear sort of like that genre of clothing. And then like I had a, a handful of like, quote, little black dresses at the time for fancy events. It was a bizarre time for me because it really did not fit my personality at all. Uh, but I loved being an assistant. I'm a really good assistant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like the reason I asked is because I mostly know you for your um <laughs> interest in crop tops. I feel like you wear crop tops <laughs> a lot. Wow. <laughs> Which is That's great. Like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to file that away. I don't have, I have not had anyone like say, you know what I think of when I think of Kristen is crop tops, but or, I like it. Or what is it called when it hits exactly at the pants? It's not necessarily a crop. It's like yeah. an exact no, it, top. 
It like it, you, your <laughs> pants and your shirt always exactly meet. And I so feel much. like you have like a bit of like a, you know, queer aesthetic. And I always think when somebody has like a job like that, that might require a little bit more of a hetero blending. I'm very yeah. curious as to what people are doing. Well, you know, I was less in tune with my queer self uh, in 2005 than I am now in 2020. So back in, in 2005, it was I was still like confused about what my style was. I mean, listen, in 2005, I think we were, it was sort of the height of the L word. We were all very confused about what that was supposed to look like anyhow. So um, I, I was, it was an easier jump for me to get into work pants. And I just pretended I was like Bette Porter, you know? Oh my God, sure. Well... <laughs> In 2005, I rode a bicycle as my primary mode of transportation, <laughs> wore jean shorts all the time with, here's a, here's a classic look for me from 2005, t-shirt, okay. jean shorts, socks pulled up, Ooh. kerchief around the neck, like a bandana. Oh, you plus were so cool. Also fingerless gloves. So everything oh. is, it's not, not one article of clothing is a full article. You know what I mean? You it's were, not pants, yeah. it's shorts. <laughs> it's not a long sleeve shirt, it's a short sleeve shirt. It's, but you do have a scarf yeah. and it's not even full gloves. And that's the look and that's the whole outfit. Amazing. And, you were um, like a, you were like a little gay newsie. Like a, like a Yeah, cool it was very like in that, you know, like if like you're if you're watching high maintenance or whatever on HBO uh. now, it's like I really looked a lot <laughs> like that guy. Um that was you were a lot cooler than I was. I was in 2005, my main aesthetic outside of like hedge fund life was uh straightened hair. I had like a, you know, I would straighten my hair, I wore earrings, a lot of lip gloss. There was a product called Lip Venom at the time that would Oh my god, um, I know this thing. Of, remember? Yeah, it was like made of cinnamon and you would like put it on your lips and they would burn so bad, but it would like plump them up. That is right. <laughs> so that was kind of my deal. I was really I was like I didn't understand that I could be, um, I could take a step outside of like what I knew as femme uh, at that time. You know, I, I was just a baby. I was a baby gay and I was trying to figure out my way. And since I knew I wasn't like going to cut my hair short, I was instead like, well, I better get the straightening iron out, you know? <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I guess. Huh. I mean, I'm just trying to think like, so. What, how far, when did you, when did you figure out what was going on with you? 2005 versus what year were you figuring oh, out? Oh, no, my sexuality was, is, it's like a while for you, right? Yeah, yeah, because I came out really young. Like oh, high well, school. I mean, yeah, high school. I guess that's not necessarily really young, but I was 17 when I came out. Um, I was 17, yeah. So it was, it was 1997, um, like right before we moved into 98. Um, no, hold on, Sorry editors. It was 1998, the end of 1998. Um, and I was 17 and I came out as bisexual. So I had been out, what is the math on that? 98 to seven, seven years. And when you say you were like not aware that you could step outside of um, like a femme presentation, where were you even getting the information on what the presentation should be in your mind? Like when you're like, it's like, where are you getting the lip venom? ideas <laughs> well sephora but yeah um, yeah 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 I, 
I, you know, it's funny because the the first thing that came to my mind when you asked me that question was that um, I went back to school in I think 2006 maybe to get my master's in gender studies, which is when I started to like really unpack sort of my sexuality as pertained to my gender and and just like really think about all of those things. But before that, I was really, especially in my undergrad, I was like so into feminist texts and um, you know I was part of the GSA in my high school. Uh, even before I knew that I was gay. And so I definitely never subscribed to gender roles as they related to heterosexuality. But once I was in like a lesbian environment, which I was very deeply in in the early 2000s, I I think that I just picked it up from, I mean, honestly, not to bring the L word into it again, but I think the L word was a big part of it. Like the majority, really all of the characters on that show were femme. Um, And even like the bar scene in New York City, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like in the you know, early 60s or something where you'd go to a queer bar and there'd be like hard butches and femmes only and they could only partner with each other. But there was still an element of like you were one or the other. Actually, that is really interesting because I would also say this is I'm like. I'm so curious to see if you would agree with this. This is like a vague societal generalization. Ready? (laughs) Yes, ready. Um, Because I think I also would have been maybe going to like queer events, gay bars at the same time that you're talking about. Um, right. I was in Chicago and actually maybe I was in Boston just about to go to Chicago and I was like going mm-hmm. to my first experiences. And I really feel like kind of across the board, there was a lot more femme presentation on display yeah. than like I see from that younger Mm-hmm. group of people now like and my perception was that like butch people were older like that they were like older than me and like there were yeah. also like some older f- femier people but everybody I knew who was who was masculine um mm-hmm. presenting at all was like 30 or 40 like I really didn't feel like there was like anybody in their 20s who was like super in touch totally. with that I feel like we've really shifted there I agree 100%. And I um, I also think that, like, even when I look ba- back at my relationships, that, like, several of the people who I've been in relationships with at that time were way, presenting way more feminine than they are currently um, as, like, things have evolved. And we've, including myself, including myself, that, like, there has been, um, I think, honestly, not to, like, give the internet too much credit, but I do think that the more we used the internet, the more we could see see each other and the more we could see that there was you know more than two things which you'd think as queer people we would know but uh, you know you grow up in a world where you're set, you're given two boxes for long enough and you kind of just automatically think that even when you go over and break the first set of two boxes, there must be just another set of two boxes over here. So I I just think that like the rise of Tumblr, I know that Tumblr isn't really around anymore, but that was a massive deal for queer communities because we could see things that we couldn't see before. And it allowed us more flexibility, I think, to, you know, wear our crop tops, if you will. Yeah. I mean, I I also, it's a, (laughs) strikes me as a safety issue um, because Mm -hmm. I think also as we've moved, it's, I, What I could look at as a scale of progress is that I think people are not not across the board, but 
a little more upset when hate crimes happen. Like that's like the progress. <laughs> yeah. It's not like things are fixed or like that mm-hmm. the that abuse has stopped 100 percent, but like that that has shifted. And I really think like, <clears throat> you know, walking down the street. Um, and again, it's not like there were no sort of people leaning into their masculinity, but I just think that my experience, I'll speak from my experience, was like. Um, some parts of my, some members of my family, I did not speak openly with about what was, what was going on in my dating life at the time. Mm-hmm. So like there was a little bit of a, I think plausible deniability in the fact that I had long hair. Like I had long yeah. hair during the, two sides of long hair during this wow. era. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> two sides of long hair. Um, uh, uh, so there's like plausible deniability with family. Um, and I also think it was like. You know, I'm not getting clocked on a plane the same way, you know, like or um, in a bathroom or, you know, all -hmm. of those things. And yeah, that just feels like so. So it does make sense to me that it would be people who are older, who maybe have some financial stability and can live in like the neighborhood they want to or have have come out to their family members or decided that they're not going to, like, it's, it makes sense that it would, that those things would line up with somebody who might have the comfort of time. Yeah. Well, Um, it's complicated though, because it's like, man, I just, not not that long ago, I read Stone Butch Blues for the first time mm -hmm. uh, ever somehow. I don't know how I hadn't read it up until now, but you know, this, that's a story that takes place way, way long ago. And, um, you know, written by Leslie Feinberg. And it's like that, that those stories were not stories of people who were expressing their gender, um, expression or identity because they were able to or because they were safe. It was more that they, you know, that they had to. And so the risk that came. So I think that it's complicated. Like I see, I see what you're saying, but I think it's complicated because I don't even know that I was doing it for, for possibility, if you will. And, and there were times when I felt like there were even people from within the queer community who, uh, which I wouldn't have even called it that then, by the way, like I'm, I ref- I'm referring to queer community now, cause that's the word that I use, but I would have never used that word in the early two thousands. Um, I would have thought it was a bad word to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, but anyhow, I think that there were people even then when I remember walking into Henrietta's and it was like, I looked too straight um, for some people. I mean, even so, like my ex-wife, when I first met Jenny, uh, she was like, literally like that is a like that is a straight girl. Right. Like I like I understand that this person is saying she has a crush on me, but like that is a straight girl (laughs) because we had such stringent um, understandings of like what things could look like. And apparently I was feminine. And it's funny to me now because I don't feel very feminine anymore, but Hmm. At the time, I guess I was like pushing the boundary of like how feminine I could be while still being believable as somebody who is interested in other women. Yeah, definitely. Again, I'm like so glad that you brought that up because I don't I'm not saying that this is like now there are masculine people or now there are, uh, you know, trans Hmm. people or non-binary folks, but more so just that like it feels that there's um, in the like lesbian trans non-binary like and Mm -hmm. like even like sort of the spectrum of trans folks too it just seems like there's a little bit more comfort comfort with um a a more masculine expression and by the way also what you're saying of non-comfort with a with a feminine (laughs) expression you know, also still true and true at the yeah. time too. It's almost like, yeah. I just feel like at the exact time that you're talking about 2005, it's like 
most people that were like, again, this is like, this is like very not true, I'm sure in many ways, but I feel like it's like, you know, people were wearing like, like, like Chuck Taylors or like Air Force Ones or <laughs> Doc Martens with like mm-hmm. a tie, <laughs> you know, yeah. and like, Ooh, yeah. and like, um, <laughs> and like that was sort of the, Mm-hmm. Um, oh God! Well, I I just imagined know, f- Avril Lavigne, and I can't get the picture of Avril Lavigne <laughs> out of my head. <laughs> but you know that that was um, yeah. maybe a little bit more of like yeah. what we were seeing. Where I think now I see like a lot of um, pictures of younger people in suits, or like I see. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm sure this was happening at the time. It just felt less accessible to me. It feels like a little different totally. to me. Totally. And it's not necessarily that- the like just um the scene from it's not Stone Butch Blues or the scene from um If These Walls Could Talk Too. I was gonna say if these walls could talk to is exactly what I was thinking of. Where yeah. they're <laughs> all partnering up and dancing at the gay bar. What a great movie. Oh uh, yeah, no, or I I agree. series of shorts. I also think that it's, it's. I mean, and I'm just like thinking off the cuff here, but I do think part of that is also that mainstream fashion has gone in a more androgynous direction and that like there are tons of, you know, cis straight women who are rocking red carpets and suits and things. And as much as I want to believe that like, it's just like everything's getting, you know, better. And it is, but I think that part of that is because um, we see it a lot in, in quote, mainstream society too. Definitely. So it's gotten easier for those of us who were like, we've been wanting to wear these things for... <laughs> 100%. Yes. Yeah. And I think you're right also to like, um, you know, take this to the internet and the power of the internet and, yeah. you know, what Adam Rapon is wearing on the red carpet, Timothy Chalamet yeah. is wearing yeah. the next year. Um, <laughs> I don't even know how Timothy identifies actually. Um, and also I will say, I don't know, you know, Chicago... Um, in Boston, I think it was like a little bit more one community, but in Chicago, there's like a, the South side queer scene mm-hmm. and the North side queer scene are very split. So yeah. there could be somebody who is having a completely different yeah. experience than me that is 100%. a black person that was on the South side of Chicago. So I don't know. I'm only speaking for, um, what I have noticed. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! back to well actually let me ask you i mean this might be like a very personal question but i'm here for it it's my work yeah <laughs> but you know i know that your um job requires a lot of right now requires a lot of like 
Skyping or being by yourself or being, you know, I know when you lived here in LA that we spoke about, you know, the amount of time that you were at home. And I don't know how much things have changed in New York um, where you live now. But I will say, you know, I'm somebody who's always looking for ways to combat loneliness because of my job and how much I travel. And I'm pretty curious about like, you know, as somebody with a little bit of a portable job that might not be interfacing with a shit ton of people all the time Mm -hmm. per the requirement of your work. What do you do for yourself to create community? It's, it's, that is such a a timely question for me, Cameron, because I have just started to like really lean into the amount of time that I am alone. Like, and I do think, I do think it is too much. Like I'm trying to, um, (laughs) relatable, relatable. (laughs) Um, because I, cause I don't, right. I don't have a job that I go to. Um, I do try to like go to the library and work, um, or go even to, I rarely go to coffee shops to work, but even, even that just, just a place where there are other humans orbiting me is better sometimes than being in my apartment for too long. Um, and so I think for me, it's been like this two pronged approach. I've been really excelling at one prong, which is like, what are all the things I can do alone that will make me feel good? So I've started going to movies by myself. I've always loved going to meals by myself. Like that's for, that's been like my love affair with New York City has been for over a decade, like, oh, I'm going to take myself out to dinner with like a book and get a glass of wine. Um, so so those things I've been pushing forward on. I, I recently went to France um, and spent a little bit of time in Paris. And when I was there, uh, it was the first time I had been there and I did all these amazing things. And then I sort of thought like, you live in New York City, dummy. Like, why don't you do anything with the city that is at your fingertips all the time? So um, I've been really pushing myself to like go out and go to museums and um, sign up for talks and look into book clubs and things like that. So that I've been doing great on that end. Um, The end that I don't do as well at is new friendship. Um, I, I'm just like, I'm not a very, it's surprising to a lot of people. It won't be to you cause you know me, but, uh, I'm not a very social person. Um, my friendships are very close and intimate and few. And so I found myself in this place in New York city where I'm like, I don't have that many people left in the city. A lot of the people that were very close with me here in my like former life in New York City have left. You know, they have like families, they've moved a couple hours out, whatever. And so I have like three people in the city that I consider super close. And I've been trying tonight, actually, I'm having dinner with a friend of mine who I don't know that well. And I've been trying to push myself to, I don't know, experience a relationship that like doesn't have to be a hundred percent in, I've known you for 20 years, but that can be more than just, you know, an acquaintance. So we'll see how it goes. (laughs) I really relate to that, actually. You know, I will say for me, one thing that has been a big part of divorce has been making new friends. Because even though I didn't move, um, and I know you moved um, in the last two years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, almost. Well, like a year and a half. A year and a half, yeah. Yeah. you know, even though I didn't move, my life changed really drastically in terms of like the people that were in it. And so I also um, have been making a lot of new friends, which is, which is very scary and very freeing also, because I can, I've been doing a lot of work on myself and I can meet people that know me now. Actually, I have also found that it's like, I have a lot of friends that are from 20 years ago or from the last year. Mm-hmm. The sort of middle friends, I as I've been shifting 
and processing, those people have not currently like stuck around in a big way. Yeah. And and that I think might change. Um, but it's just right now, it's an interesting thing that I've noticed. It's like old friends, new friends, middle range friends. That not is for so, now. Gone for is, now. Maybe. Yes. And not as this, and not like seemingly for any reason from either side. I think just a need to like reestablish who I am totally. for myself. So totally. it's like people that, that knew so me before my last relationship and people I've met since. That's like really mm-hmm. what who is in my life right now. Yeah. No, I, I I identify with that so, so extremely where I have these like handful of people who like the people that I have from 20 years ago, I think that if I met them now, I wouldn't even necessarily be super close with them. But we have such a history. I mean, I love them, but we're just so different in so many ways. But the history brings us together and the consistency. Uh, and I think the like honesty over the span of 20 years has like real impact when you know that somebody for that long has always sort of like been there for you and you've been there for them. But I agree with you. I'm in this like shifting place where the majority of the people that I had in that middle space are just really not in my life anymore. And and to your point about divorce, like I'm in a position where I, I was fine. When I had a partner, the amount of close friends I had was plenty. I don't need a lot of like outside engagement. Um, I'm pretty happy to like, you know, be by myself and whatever, be with my partner and then like occasionally go see a good friend. But what I've noticed in the last year as I've sort of like gotten back on my feet again, uh, emotionally speaking, is that like, uh, without a partner, there's a lot of time. Did you know how much time there is when you don't have a partner to like discuss your emotions with? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I actually do, Kristen. <laughs> it's, it's really, I'm just like, wow, I could just like watch TV all night tonight. Like I don't have to, okay, I don't have to process why I was angry uh, five minutes ago because nobody was here to see it except for my cats. It's great. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I mean, wow, I do. Well, I have. I have also found that um, I felt so sure of like hitting some sort of finish line. Like, I don't, I, I'm yeah. really still unpacking like what part of this is Catholicism or like my mm. conservative upbringing or being from the fucking suburbs or being yeah. like the age that the week I graduated from college was the same week Massachusetts became the first state to legalize same sex marriage. Like, <laughs> I felt so sure that marriage was like sort of a like, all done. Like, I don't, I, I have no idea. Like I am, I am on a daily basis trying to unpack where that came from. Um, because I was also like a young person, you know? Um, and Mm -hmm. I think that that really for my, for me played into, um, the sort of life that I was setting up for myself outside of partnership. Like I really was like, I'm happy with this person. And then here's the group of people we have around us, but I really Mm -hmm. wasn't doing as much work as I could have been on. And here's the community around me. Um, Totally. Well, and and I think for, for a lot of us, we have to hit the wall to, yeah, (laughs) to be like, Oh, Oh, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's been a really, yes, I would say I, Yes, I'm really glad that 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 wall was that wall fucking sucked, but I'm really <laughs> <laughs> but I think it may have been unavoidable seeing as the seeing as I was yeah. driving directly toward it. 
Exactly. Well, and the thing, right. I mean, same, you know, like it turns out you don't see it until you're like, that's too late to put the brakes on. Um, but I, I think to your, to your questioning, I don't know the answer, but I had a similar, I never had like grand ideas about like, then I'll get, that's a lie actually. I guess I did have some grand ideas about like just getting married and having a family, but I didn't feel like that kind of person. Um, but I definitely felt like once I was married, it was done. And so I, there's a, a big part of me that really feels like there's Catholicism has its head in there, even if it's a hundred percent. Um, because I, I come from an extended family where, I mean, there's a lot of people that are still married that really shouldn't be. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's not divorce in my family. That's it's yeah. just, there really isn't. It's very, there's like one person I never knew the other partner they had because it happened before mm-hmm. I was born. Um, yeah. And so when you're raised in that, it's there, there are positives, I think, to, you know, learning to work on a relationship before bouncing. But like on the flip side, I don't think that I really learned what it was to consider that it could end. Um, and and that is something that like, I mean, that was the reason why the whole experience was like, what? And still, and I think I hear this in like what you're saying too, that I have a lot of moments where it's super freeing too, because I'm like, well, it's done. Like it's, it is officially not going to look like what I thought it was going to look like. There is no way that I could ever make it look like the way I thought it was going to look. So in that capacity, I feel it's just like completely free to redefine myself. And maybe this connects back to like why our friendships are also evolving and like the people in our life is evolving Mm -hmm. is because I think that as terrifying and overwhelming as it is to hit that wall, it really is like, okay, well, you can only keep moving forward. So what's it going to look like? Yeah, I definitely have a lifelong tendency towards expecting perfection from myself where, where like, and also I have compassion for other people who cannot be perfect. Yeah. Not always, not always if they can't be perfect toward me. I also like really want your behavior <laughs> toward me to be the best, <laughs> but like out in the world. Like I've, sure, you know sure. What I mean? As it doesn't but impact you, yeah. <laughs> I have um, very little compassion for myself when my life is not perfect. Yeah. Um, and that's another thing that I've really had to, like, well, uh, c- cool. I mean, given that, that you have no compassion for yourself about having an imperfect life, things are not currently perfect. So, like, mm-hmm. you're going to have to grow in that area or be miserable. Right. Um, and that's right. been helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very similar in that regard too. I love, I love things to be in their place. You know, I like things to be like done properly, done well. I like to be on time. I like to, you know, answer my emails. Uh, And so that obviously that extends into an emotional place as well. And it's, it's, that's the trickiest part of like, okay, but it's, it's really freeing. And like talking about that, I'm thinking about like the first few months after it was a reality for me that I was like, oh, my life is exploding where it was awful, but it was also like, what, there's nothing I can do, but sit here. And also I could do anything that I want right now because my life is exploding. So I don't have to answer these emails and I don't have to pick up the phone <laughs> and I don't have to do all of these things. <laughs> wow. I, that's actually like amazing. Uh, you know what? I feel some of that too. I know what you're talking about. I actually also, you know, I mean, I, we saw each other during this time in each other's lives. Um, You were the first person that I stayed with after things were going (sighs) south and I needed to stay somewhere else besides my apartment. And I fucking cried on your floor. 
which I had <laughs> I never done on any friend's floor previously. <laughs> Not like I've never cried, cried in front of people, although I had previously to this this last year cried very infrequently in front of friends. I've yeah. never cried fully on the floor. On the floor. I remember. <laughs> I can see I, I can see where I was. I can see where you were. Oh, my so God. Vivid in my mind. Because it, because it was such a bizarre, it really was a bizarre and very fateful um, overlap of experience, you know? Yeah. Um, because I don't think that, like, had I not just gone through something very similar, I, I don't know that I would have been your first phone a friend, but it was probably like, well, shit. I know somebody who's, like, literally singed uh, having just walked through this the beginning of this fire um and it was really incredible to be able to share that experience on so many levels with you um but I remember it man I remember it I can like see that the tiles were orange yeah yeah when I say cried on your floor I do mean face down I hope everyone knows I do mean face down on the floor. Oh, God. Yeah. I, you know what's funny, Cameron, is I feel like every time, like any any uh, memory I have of you and I in my house in uh, California when that was happening, we were always on the floor. Like, I <laughs> There were there were places to sit. We were not sitting in them. (laughs) No, like we just were both like we cannot sit in chairs right now. (laughs) Need to be as close to the Earth's gravity center. Oh my god! Yes, that is very real. You know, I mean, that is really. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to you that we had that experience together. And you know, I just didn't. um, For a lot of reasons, I just didn't. I grew up in a household where it's like you kind of keep your like biggest pain at home. Mm-hmm. And then when you go out in the world, you're like um, operating with a little bit of a presentable face. Sure. Um, you put your lip, you put your lip venom on before leaving the <laughs> yes. house, you know? Yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> and I think that that also appears in the job that I chose. You know, which is like, yeah. I really love my job and I think I'm doing the right thing and I'll, for me. And I also think sometimes like, you know, it's not, I'm not um, on stage like being the word. I wish I want to say 100% honest, but that's not the right. It's like, I'm honest there, yeah. but it's a scripted thing. Yeah, it's no, a scripted it's, it's, thing where I get to make the point. You know, it's like you I get to write like the one side, song or right? whatever. Yes, yeah, it's one side of honesty. It's not dishonest. It's just that it's never the full picture. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Or rarely, anyway. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's you know, it's like the difference between. I mean, you and I are having a conversation, and also like, you know, we we live in a world where this could be edited or something. You know, like that's hundred percent. There's a lot of there's a lot of I honesty think, and then there's also then there's also the thing of showing up at someone's house and crying on their floor. And I feel <laughs> like I've gotten so much fucking better at that this year. And it really yeah. does start with that moment of totally. like really being received into your home and you're like, Yeah, man. Uh, uh, do well, it. I'm I'm glad. I mean, it, it was very um empowering for me to also get to share that experience with you because my I mean, a lot of my life, the the biggest comfort I've I've taken has been using my experiences to help like 
pull some other people through similar experiences. You know, that's just kind of my thing. Uh, and it was so early that I was, I'm still barely at a point where I can use what I've walked through in a public way to like help people publicly. But for you in that moment, a friend of mine, somebody who I felt comfortable with, it was really powerful for me to know that like, what you needed was not somebody to be like, it's going to be okay. But for somebody to be like, it is definitely not okay. (laughs) (laughs) And you can really only be that source of comfort if you have just gone through or if you've gone through the fire where you're just like, listen, this is going to be the worst thing that has happened to you maybe ever. Yeah. Um, But you will still stand up and you will still go to work and you will still, you know, like, it just sucks. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. That was helpful, actually. You know, that actually really was helpful. I I mean, Mm -hmm. that's true. I, again, with this, like, put your best face forward sort of uh, mentality that I think I'd previously been walking through, I think I would have expected that the best thing somebody could say to me is, like, you're going to you're going to be all right, um, or it's Mm going to be okay, or this isn't as bad as, and I, and I did get that some places during the last, um, 18 months of my life. And that was for me less helpful in this exact moment, you know? And it has given me some really good tools for speaking to other people because I think I just, I don't know. I, again, it's like, When I say perfection, I don't mean that I think I'm perfect. I mean that Mm -hmm. I think I have a standard that is, like, humanly impossible for (laughs) being able to navigate the world. And so that kind of person, the best thing you could say is it's not going to be that bad. Right. You know, until that person has to face reality and go, like, no, it actually, like, it's really hard to be a person. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's that bad. (laughs) Right. It is. It's hard in so many ways and in ways that I will never experience in some ways I have. And I think, you know, that's the reason that I mean, not to bring it all back to community, but like that is quite literally the reason that communities come together and find each other. It's the reason why there are like closed spaces for engagement with other people is because sometimes you need to sit either in a room with somebody or on their kitchen floor and look across and not have to feel the need to explain that you aren't okay and that you don't want to hear that you will be okay. Uh, And it's when you like find that community that's like, we've done it. We've been there. We know what this feels like, that you can get that kind of connection and that kind of support. It's just more real. Um, It's more grounded in what you're feeling, you know? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, this is a question that I'm not sure how it will be received. Like, I don't know if you <laughs> want to talk about this. Well, what's um, really fun is that you can see me, too. Yeah. So you'll really know. I can't pretend. Um, I I want to <laughs> ask you about dating, if that is something that you are at all willing to talk about. And I don't even mean, like, specifics, sure. but, like, can you talk about if that is something that you're currently open to? Is that If that's something that you're currently doing? So I'm really bad at dating uh, is something that I like had an idea that was part of my truth, but really didn't solidify until now um, because I, I'm somebody who never dated. I was in a relation, my first relationship uh, just out of the closet from like 18 to age 20 with a two year relationship. Then I had like a year of being single and all I did. No, that's not true. I had three years of being single, but all I did was like go out to bars and I always wanted to be that girl that like went to a bar and met somebody and took them home for a night and then didn't ever talk to them again. And I was not 
that girl at all, no matter how hard I tried. I just like needed uh, an emotional connection to possibly make out with anybody at that point. Anyhow, um, then I met um, a partner of five years and then I was single for a year of like grieving that relationship before I met Jenny and I was with Jenny for almost 10 years. So this is not to give you like my history, but I really had never dated before now and I'm open to it, but I've tried online dating. I hate it so much, Cameron. I hate it so much. <laughs> I just like, I don't ever open the apps anymore because I don't understand it or like it. I don't like the expe- the sense of expectation. Um, and also I'm somebody who, I mean, maybe this feeds into the perfectionism uh, conversation we were having, but I'm somebody who like either knows or doesn't know. And when I fall, I fall hard and that's it. And if it's like not that thing, then usually I'm just sort of like, nah, nah. So all on all some, I'm open to it, but I'm very bad at it. Well, when you say there's an expectation on the app, can you, on the, on, on apps, on the apps. <laughs> I saw a hundred. Um, when we go on the YouTube. Um, yeah. What, is, what are you, what is the expectation that you found I think that it's just the way that I've met people in the past has been, you know, through mutual friends and you kind of like meet them. And when you meet another person, you know, there's all manner of expectation. You might like them as a friend. You might not like them as a friend. They might be a wonderful person. They might have a job opportunity down the line for you. Like there's just like this world of possibilities. And so if what comes to the surface is like, I think that they're attractive. I think that they're interesting. Maybe I kind of have a crush on them. There's something about that journey that feels very authentic to me. And um, I have gone on many a date from uh, apps. And all of those dates, they've been different. But all of them have felt very similar when I sit down, which is, are we going to like each other romantically, comma, sexually, comma, or not at all, or both? And it's just like, God, I hate it. I just, I, it just feels very unnatural to me. And I, I know that it works for people. My sister met her fiance on an online dating app. So like, I'm not here to say they don't work. It's just that I, I feel a lot of pressure. And I think that, I think that there's also like a sense of vulnerability that seems more extreme to me with that set of expectations. When I sit across, um, you know, a table from somebody and I know that they are like, like assessing if I'm going to be uh, attractive to them in a variety of fashions while I'm like sipping my cocktail. It's just a lot for me to manage all at once, you know? Does it feel like a job interview for yes, a hedge fund? It does. It, it feels like a job interview. And honestly, I do better at job interviews than I do with the expectation of, am I going to be attractive to you or not? I don't like it. I wonder why. Because <laughs> actually that, it, you know, like you said earlier that you're like amazing at acing the job interview, which I like totally believe. I know that you have like, <laughs> I like have seen you like run a room. Like I know how charming and charismatic you can, you like can turn on, you know, like, um, so then I'm curious as to like, is it that, is it like that a job doesn't have to have that feeling that you're talking about, which is like, this is what I meant to be, to be doing where like a person, like, this is who I meant to, is there like a difference there? Yeah. You know, okay. I'm going to get like fairly deep, but I think that I know what the difference is. And I think that the difference is that in a job interview, I'm extremely confident in my skills and my, like what I have to offer. Right. Like I know, like if I don't, if I interview for a job and I don't get it nine times out of 10, I'm not worried that like I'm bad at this thing or I'm like not good enough for this thing. But 
if the interview is a date, then I am not at all confident in like what I have to bring to the table. And I mean, that's a little bit painting with broad strokes here. But, you know, I'm just I think it's much more vulnerable in the fact that like I'm afraid like I won't be attractive enough or I will be too much emotionally for somebody or like whatever the all of the years and years and years of history that I know we all have from relationships, they come with me. Uh, And so it's just way more um, there's way more at risk uh, with my emotions at, on a date than there is on an interview. Yeah. Just probably, I mean... <laughs> sorry, I don't mean to, to say too much, but like literally my last therapy session, my therapist was like, you keep talking about like how you want to find a second job. You know, like I'm trying to find my next project. She's like, but you don't really bring up anything having to do with dating. And I'm like, wow, it's all really coming together here on uh, this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man, query. If I can tell your therapist she's fired. Yeah, yeah. This is much more affordable, actually, than my therapist. So, (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, that makes, makes a lot of sense to me. And I also will say that, you know, my experience is like that I have experienced, I have had so many different self-esteem blows in the last couple of years of my life. Um, I also have had like so many wins, but I just mean like, then your show is canceled because your network is canceled. Then your marriage is canceled. You know, like it's like, it's a lot of cancellations. Um, and I just, I think like some of what you're talking about, what I hope for you is that um, is that time is a helpful thing. And, you know, yeah. sometimes yeah. it's I- like, sometimes it's about telling your friend, this one is hard, Kristen. <laughs> this uh, yeah. is, this See, one is hard. There you go. There you go. This is hard. <laughs> and I don't think you have to fix it, you know? There sounds like yeah. there's probably nothing to be done, which is awesome, you know? Except no, for, like, more experience and some yeah, patience. I'm d- I really, I really mean what I say when I say that, like, as much as it's like, whoa, this is crazy. This is like a totally crazy time in my life. It's also like very, very exciting because I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be 40 next year, you know, like, and I'm that like, I'm going to be 40 and like potentially single and potentially have a job that like pays me not nothing, which is different than any other time in my life. And I'm, <laughs> I'm lear- like the fact that I get to like learn about myself the way that I'm learning about myself right now is very powerful. Even, even the things that I've learned, even just talking to you here today, you know? Oh man. Well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate yes. you. And, Thank you um, so much for having me. Before I send you back into your day, I just want to ask you to shout out a queero. Yes. So I, I know that queeros are maybe supposed to have part of your like personal narrative um, in them. And the, my, so, okay, so my there's no supposed is, to. There's no supposed to. There's no supposed to. Okay. Because the first person that came to my mind when I knew that I needed to pick a queero was um, Broderick Greer. Do you know Broderick Greer? Do you know that name? Only from the internet. Yeah. From so Twitter so specifically. Broderick, and I'm not like super, super close with Broderick, but he's um, a reverend, um, a speaker and an activist. I mean, I don't want to put that word on him, but I've he's been in my orbit for a long time. And I, I think that he is one of the most incredible minds of our generation, not to be like super dramatic, but he is um, somebody who speaks so much on um, being uh, queer, being black and being uh, Christian and his way about speaking, especially on like 
those themes and how sexuality and religion come together, how gender and religion come together, how race and religion come together are so powerful and important. Uh, and I know that years ago, um, I did a video with with Broderick. Uh, it was a part of a larger series that I did called First Person. And his was the one where we talked about sexuality and gender and religion. And I just... That video, I wished so badly that it could have existed, you know, 15 years prior so that my mom could have seen it. My mom could have seen a person of faith talking so brilliantly as he did on those topics. So I'm picking him because I think that across my experience, um, it's been sort of where religion and sexuality crash into each other that have been the most difficult. And I think he's doing a lot of on the ground work to help communities. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you, Kristen. And um I hope I see you soon in real life. Hey, you know what? Me too. And I hope that we're both sitting in proper chairs. (laughs) (laughs) You bet. (laughs) 